This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are discussing the Ministry album from 1992, Psalm 69, The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. Or indeed, uh, as it's actually presented on the cover of the album, just a bunch of Greek stuff that apparently translates into Head 69. Yes, exactly. It's crazy how it's got like two different titles, neither of which are actually what it says on the cover. <laughs> no, but all very on the nose when you do a little bit of research, for sure. Oh, like yes, They, they yes. weren't, uh, not a lot of subtlety, which I think is a good understatement, a good theme for this record, right? Not a lot of subtlety. Right, yeah, they're not exactly a subtle band, no. No, <laughs> no, no certainly not at this point in their career, that's for sure. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so yeah, hello everyone. Uh, I will just say at the outset that you remember, I think it was in the last episode that we mentioned when we were going to open the listener poll for the Encore episode that is coming up, the first, well, second technically of our Encore episodes. Um, that poll is now closed uh, and we will be selecting one of the choices uh, for that episode at the end of this show. And then the next episode will be that Encore episode where we talk about an album by a band that we have already discussed, a different album, obviously. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Me too. I'm excited about that, man. We had some, well, I'll go into it later, but we had some very interesting uh, yeah, nominations there. Dude, not in any way that I thought they would go at all. I'm always surprised, and that's what makes it awesome, by the choices yeah. that people put up there. Exactly, yeah, and it's the same for the regular listeners poll as well. You just It's impossible to predict yep. uh, our listeners, really, at any step. <laughs> No, it, it's it's kind of, it's like a reminder of the like the lens that you personally just look through, right? In the frame of reference yeah. that you had, you're like, oh, I expect that this, this, and this will probably come up. Nope, completely no. different than what I expected. People would put up there. Speaking of unexpected things from our listeners, uh, I saw an iTunes review the other day. I don't recall. I didn't sort of recognize the the handle of the person who wrote it, but it referred to us as refined gentlemen. <laughs> No way. Holy cow. Can can whoever wrote that, can you give my wife a call for crying out loud? Because she would be like lackadaisical like, nerd. Yeah, I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> you know. That's great. Hey, I'll take it. When I, I was just we were joking before we, we got on the air that I, I just turned 45, so I will take the compliments wherever I can get them in whatever form they come in. Refined gentlemen, I will take it. I'm gonna cut and paste that review today and uh print it out and just <laughs> Leave that on the table somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Oh, man. So, yeah, so, um, uh, and speaking of sort of ages and milestones, yeah, last episode was our 50th, and that was the Dokken episode, which, unsurprisingly, our listeners had quite a few opinions about. Holy moly, yes. Let's just get into a little bit of the feedback here. Um, <laughs> Mike Stoner said, hopefully the imminent Encore episode will be another Dokken album. So that's that's good. We have a there's an audience out there for it. Uh let's see. I will give Joe, you one spoiler. No Dokken albums were nominated in the Encore poll. No, Sorry. I know, much to my chagrin, but that's that's fine. And also, uh, unless I missed it, no winger albums, but we'll that that's we all right. Covered I'm gonna, winger yet. Now I'm gonna have to uh I'm gonna have to take yeah. that one on myself. Uh, Joe said, I hadn't listened to much Dokken in decades, but hearing these songs put me right back into my teenage years when I had several of their albums on cassette. I still dig about half of this album, which is good. I think in going back and listening to it, uh, if there's a few songs that resonate, that's always kind of a good thing, especially if you hadn't revisited an album like that in years. Uh, Mike said, a mention of Midnight Dynamite by Kicks, Awesome. Now just waiting for a reference to Obscure Masterpiece, Welcome to the Club by Kick Axe, or Now Hear This by Helen Bach. 
So yeah, uh, kicks. Who knows? Kicks may come up at some point. They're a little bit more rock and roll, and I get a lot of guff for that stuff on here. So we'll I, see. It probably if, uh, won't surprise you to learn that I have no idea who any of those bands are, or or any of those records. I've never heard they, of any of that. They, I would say, are an ACDC adjacent band that, uh, unfortunately, like many bands of the mid '80s, got most well known for a ballad that they right. did called yeah, "Don't Close Your Eyes." Off of the awesome Blow My Fuse album, but I digress. Uh, Christopher said, okay, well, here it goes. I'm listening now, and I love how excited Brian is, despite my distaste for Dokken. Clearly a technically competent band that has never written anything I want to listen to again. <laughs> now, about George Lynch, he's clearly a talented musician, but I honestly think there are at least a dozen or so guitar players residing in that genre that did it better than Lynch did. Uh, and that was interesting, because that was some sentiment that I, I saw a couple times come up uh, you know, uh, Warren D. Martini was one that got brought up, but people not didn't have the same reverence for for George Lynch that I did, or sort of my thought of where he sits in that landscape there. But I would say, if you listen to Lynch's stuff on Dokken and were not that blown away, I would encourage you to check out uh, not just Lynch Mob, which is war, where people usually go next, but some of his newer stuff like Ultrafonics really where he really kind of or kxm which just announced that they're working on their third album which is amazing uh where he oh, really that's gets the king's cross supergroup thing isn't it yes it is uh ray luzier and doug panic and george it, yeah. lynch and both of their first two albums were amazing and that's an album where all three of them they literally don't write songs until they get in the studio and then they go in the studio and just make stuff and it is so like free and they all kind of get to explore like it's really amazing stuff so uh if this george lynch stuff didn't grab you then uh then definitely check that out uh let's see who else commented david said under lock and key was the only album by Dokken that i owned up until a couple of years ago uh let's see jason said i saw Dokken on the monsters of rock package tour in 1988 and they were loud and you could tell they hated each other <laughs> Uh, let's see. Todd said, my first listen was rough. I really had to fight the urge to turn it off. The second time and third time were better. I did catch myself tapping my foot to some of the songs, but in the end, when I'm in the mood for this kind of thing, I'd much rather listen to early rat crew or quiet riot, uh, uh-huh. which is another sentiment I saw, uh, you know, a couple times is that, uh, people, uh, like rat it seems better than Dokken, which i not we, that i don't we like appear rat, to but, have quite a few rat fans on the uh on yeah, the group dude. i noticed that yeah which is kind of and i think just to digress a second on rat i think what takes some of the shine off of rat for me although you could say the exact same thing about Dokken, is how poorly uh steven piercy's vocals have held up over the years and how just nowadays he's it's just not good and that's the same kind of situation that don Dokken. right is in nowadays, but, uh, but I always, well, I guess away it was from the earlier stuff. No, but I always thought that Don Dokken was more, uh, melodic than Stephen Piercy. And I also felt George Lynch was amazing. So that's where I kind of gravitated toward Dokken, but definitely a lot of rat fans in there. Uh, let's see. Art said, I really enjoyed this episode and I'm pleasantly surprised by Anthony's reaction. I actually bought the CD, which was on sale at Barnes and Noble for four ninety nine shortly after I knew that it was next. With that being said, I'm super excited for the next episode as Psalm 69 is a great album and one that I haven't listened to in quite some time. Well, we'll be talking a lot about that. Indeed. Uh, I wonder if some of the, because we did, I mean, rat aside, there were a few people who were like, you know, 
uh, who said this album's fine, but as a representative example of this kind of music, you know, it's not my favorite or it's not the best or whatever. And I wonder if, because we discussed this a little in the show, if part of that is because that album in particular, I mean, I don't know about the rest of Dawkins Output, but as we said, it's not triumphal in the way that a lot of hair metal was. Uh, you know, that's something that that's really, true. And we did talk about this a lot. You know, a lot of it is about kind of like lost love and tragedy and that sort well, of thing, rather than, you know, girls, booze and party, let's have a, all have a good time. And I wonder if that's, you know, it, it makes it a little more inaccessible. That's actually a great point. And, uh, but that to me is a theme that goes throughout every doc and album. And, but so I would say if you put them up against some of the other bands of the day, they are definitely the more brooding. Uh, they're the breakup band. Like all of their songs are either about uh, love lost, uh, trust lost, betrayal. Um, you know, looking for not being able to find love. Like it's all around that same. As opposed to the more sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll um, type of stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a theme with them. And if you want something that's a little more triumphant, like Dokken is not necessarily the place that you go for that even there's even though their songs can certainly be heavier and up-tempo and stuff like subject matter wise it's a pretty consistent theme with them there's a lot so, of heartbreak so what you're saying is that Dokken is the young metalheads gloria gainer <laughs> yes yeah absolutely every every song is like you know why did you break my heart? I trusted you and you betrayed me and all that kind of stuff. So I'm walking the streets alone in the rain and I can't find anybody to love me and blah, blah, blah. Um, and even their songs that are more overtly about, you know, one night stands or, or things like that. Uh, they played it a little more straight faced than some of the other uh, bands out there. So, yeah, but interesting point about that. You might be right in that. I think with other, uh, other bands were a little more straightforward and I think visceral when it came to the the whole uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll stuff. Uh, let's see. Oh, Phil said, uh, Dear friends, we are gathered here today to honor the memory of dearly departed T.O.R. Phil. He left us far too soon. The tragedy of his <laughs> ultimate untimely passing will shock you. Uh, I also want you to know, I don't, I know he wouldn't want you to hold Anthony Johnson responsible for the massive brain hemorrhage he suffered at the 2106 mark. Phil would have wanted you to crank some Queens Rake and Motley Crue in his honor. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the quote was we said on I the show. But it, it was when I said that I, I told you that I would rather listen to that Dokken album again than the Queens Rake or oh, um, that's right. <laughs> Motley Crue albums. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you said at the time, Phil is now dead. <laughs> yeah, he's dead. Yep. Uh, let's see. Mike said, I've posted this before, but the Dokken connection means I just have to post it again. I have always been a huge fan of Dokken. They are second, the second best band of all time just behind rap. Oh, here we go. Uh. Uh, he said, Dokken <laughs> very rarely gigged in the UK, but many years ago they had a support slot on a tour and were going to play at the NEC in Birmingham. Uh, one night of the gig, I drove down there. On the night of the gig, I drove down there, paid way over the odds for a ticket from, a, uh, from their tour and went in. Dokken were awesome. At the end of their set, I couldn't wait to get home and play all of their albums super loud to relive the experience. He said, so I left the gig and went home without bothering to watch the headline act, which was ACDC. <laughs> that is um, a story. I think what he said there was he bought an overpriced ticket from a tout, which I'm not sure if American listeners know what that what that is. Basically, that's a reseller. Scalper. A scalper, exactly. Yes, yeah. and stands outside the venue and sells them for like five times the cover price. Well, we call them ticket touts over here 
Yeah, now they just charge that much for the tickets, so you're right. already paying five times. <laughs> well, I just bought. Or they just authorize it themselves by having these like reseller sites. It's crazy. Oh yeah, unbelievable. Uh, Kenneth said, "Surprising no one, this wasn't an album for me. Some of it reminded me of White Snake in the '80s rock. Uh, Nafness wasn't for me. The thing I found most surprising was just at least." was that at least most glam bands sounded like they were having fun. This just sounded boring. And I think that's to your point, right? This doesn't, they don't write songs that are a lot of fun. Like their songs aren't about <laughs> like, hey, everything's great and we're living the life. Uh, David said hadn't listened. Maybe that's why I took to it more than some of the other Air <laughs> albums, to be honest. you know, well, That's more my kind of thing anyway. Well, I think that whether it's deeper or not, I think the fact that they do have a more somber approach, it at least gives the illusion of depth, whereas right. so yeah, much yeah. of that uh, glam metal in the 80s is just... Shiny surface. So, yeah, so super thin, you know what I mean? Uh, especially from a lyri- from lyrical content. Uh, David said, hadn't listened to this in a long time. Personally, I prefer Back for the Attack. For some reason, I don't like the sound of Under Lock and Key. I just don't know if they've compressed the hell out of it or something, but it doesn't seem to have the dynamics of Back for the Attack. Song-wise, I like it, but not sonically, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Stewart said, I was reminded of Whitesnake, Jolyn Turner era of Rainbow, as well, uh, later Magnum 2. Uh, having said that, it made a better impression than I was expecting. I could definitely see the Whitesnake comparisons, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, like, he, sure. he even looks a bit like David Coverdale. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Kenneth said, I did uh, forget to say how much I enjoyed the show. So whoops. He said, I can struggle sometimes if I didn't like the album, but this kept me engaged. Even if I was hoping for some of that old school, Anthony snark, <laughs> he said, you're getting soft in your, in your dotage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Someone else said Dokken was smart hair metal, which I think kind of ties into the theme that we yeah. were sort of talking about there. Uh, Tortoise said, I've always passed on Dokken for whatever reason. However, I get excited by how excited Brian got. <laughs> Further, does anyone else notice this felt like a like pre-Skid Row? That mm. is very interesting. Um, I don't know enough about Skid Row to say if that's, uh, you know, say if that's the case or not. You know, I would say that Skid Row is a very, would make for a very interesting discussion because they came in on the very tail end of that glam era. And they, on their first album, it was clear that their sound was not the same as a lot of that. And then they actually got heavier with each of their next two albums uh, before they sort of completely imploded. And now Sebastian Bach does his own thing. And Skid Row has been going with a couple of different singers for over the years. But that first album was a fantastic album. It just came in late in the game in the 80s. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Andy said, Brian's going to put me back in the penalty box for this, but here goes. I'm agreeing with a lot of what Anthony says here. I like some of these songs. I like the. I think the band is pretty talented, but for some reason, the album sounds kind of bloodless to me. Anthony mentioned Brian Adams, and I actually thought much the same thing, that some of these songs verged on AOR. Uh, one song especially uh, looks up the title real quick, Don't Lie to Me. Sounds like it's straight off the Karate Kid soundtrack or something. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, you can't, yeah. <laughs> you no, can't you deny can. that. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds like that Chicago song, right? Um, uh, was it The Honor of Love or The Power of I can't remember what it was, uh, but okay. off, it was off of Karate Kid 2, I think. Um, <laughs> Dave said, so do I wish every Dawkins song was about fighting Freddy Krueger? Yes, because I love <laughs> Dream Warriors, but I don't really care for most of the other songs. So 
so there you go. Uh, and then uh, Matt said, an in-depth discussion for sure. I agree with Brian's take on drifting away, a rubbish ballad considering what Dawkins is capable of. And then Phil said, so I guess I should comment, surprising no one, this album is absolutely for me. This one was uh, easy, and although no homework was required on my part, I basically ended up doing a PhD dissertation on Dokken <laughs> and then Rat, binging their entire discography. I freaking love Dokken. Under Lock and Key, I love this album, although in the end, it may be behind Tooth and Nail and Back for the Attack for me. Oh, and George Lynch should absolutely be discussed with all of the great 80s shredders. Um, yeah. Wow. Let's like I say, it was yeah a lot of a uh, lot of opinions on that album, a lot of feedback. Yeah, but as always, and here's what I absolutely love about our community here. Much like with all of those other '80s bands that I've thrown out there, people give it a chance, and that I super appreciate. Like people gave it a listen, and they found a couple things that they maybe liked about it, and they, you know, they in either way they formed a more opinion, uh, a more informed opinion about what they think of Dokken, especially if they had only you know, seen a couple of videos on MTV or something. So it's, uh, right. it's and great. even the people who were, who aren't into it, you know, were good natured. A hundred percent. And that's what I continually love about our community here is that, uh, you know, look at this, there's 72 comments in this thread on this docking episode and people just, uh, having great discussion and completely independent of you or, of you or I, you know, oh, people yeah, just yeah. Come we're, and have we're not awesome- necessary. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, it's, it, it, which I absolutely love. I mean, that's, yeah, me too. that's my favorite thing is to check in and see these conversations that kick off and just uh, a lot of back and forth in the, the friendships that you see form in our community between people who obviously had never even spoken to each other before they started, you know, kind of hanging out here. It's uh, it's got and a very old school message mind. board. Yeah, yeah. It's got that old school message board type of feel. And it also uh, is achieving that hanging out at the record store and having conversations, you know, with other fellow music fans that I love. So. Well, and we have, how many members are in the group now? I was just talking about that. I think we're at 298 now. So we're approaching 300 pretty quickly. Yowza. That's uh yeah. I mean, you know, to have, I mean, I know there are groups out there with thousands of members, like, but to oh, have sure. that, to have that many people in a group discussing something about which, you know, those people generally have strong opinions. You know, let's face it, metal, one of the reasons that this show is fun and that we do it is because metal especially is one of those things where fans tend to have very strong opinions about stuff. And so to have that with so many people involved and yet everything still be just friendly and great and civil is uh, quite remarkable. I love it. Yeah, me too. And it kind of reinforces the hunch that we had when we started the show, which is that I think people would really like to get together and talk about the music that they love and and have an outlet for that, because we we certainly craved that, which is why we started the show in the first place. Indeed, indeed. And uh, we pointed out last episode, actually, that it was uh, almost four years since our first episode. Uh, It's even closer to those four years now. It's literally, as we record, it's like 10 days from our four-year anniversary, which is crazy. Unbelievable. Um, so I, think I, cannot, I can't even fathom years. that. Yeah, yeah, I would say if someone asked me off the top of my head, like, how long have you guys been doing that podcast? I'd say probably about two years. Yeah, a couple of years, maybe three. Yeah, yeah a couple yeah. of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many episodes did you do? Uh, I don't know. We're probably up to like 30 now or something like that. <laughs> nope, <Yeah>. 50. <laughs> yeah, this is 51. Yeah, crazy. And then if you start thinking about the hours, because some of them are over two hours long, I mean, we've got to be over 75 hours now as far as like oh, actual. Easily. Yeah. 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 But so. that, that, that's podcasting for you. I mean, you, 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 you very quickly, well, you know this, obviously, having done 
things like Secret Identity for so long, you, you, you look back and you realize, oh my God, I've literally thousands of hours of me. Yep. Yacking. <laughs> Matt and I figured it out. I, I, I did like some ballpark estimates one time, but I think like with Secret Identity, you could have a 24-hour radio station go for like a month and a half and not run out of content <laughs> in like 24 hours a day. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And uh, the, the toughest thing about it now is that I, I didn't archive them well when we first started. And so I'm actually slowly putting them up on the internet archive, all the old back right, episodes right. of Secret Identity, but like they're on backup hard drives and stuff like that. Like it's, uh, yeah, that was a, a hard lesson I learned along the way. It's like, do that better next time. Yeah, that, that's one thing I did do from the start with Unjustly Maligned. I have, you know, an archive of the entire show. And that's another one where I tried to keep those shows to around an hour. Some of them were a yep. little less, some of them went a little over. But yeah, as a result, there's almost 100 hours of that out there you know even with it having uh, i think it was 80 83 was the last episode i think or was it 87 one of the two but yeah so there's close to 100 hours of that out there as well it's uh and then yeah there's god knows how many hours of me talking on the doing incomparable game shows and the like and uh-huh <sighs> there's a lot of us out there on the on the internet yep um, and we haven't even started talking about the album this week right, well so <laughs> let's <laughs> i think that's a good cue so <laughs> let's do that start talking about ministry so uh, I mean, it's one of those things where it's hard to imagine anybody listening to the show doesn't know ministry and, you know, is at least the basics of their history. But in case they don't, they were formed probably earlier than most people realize in 1981. Yeah. Al, Jur- Al Jurgensen and uh, at the time drummer Steve-O, Stephen George, who's now a, a producer, um, as a synth pop outfit. And then in the mid 80s, Al discovered hardcore um and picked up his electric guitar again and the album slowly shifted towards you know what we now think of as the ministry sound um jurgensen has actually given multiple explanations for for that shift in style over the years and what happened exactly um most of them are contradictory this yep. is a common theme with it's Jürgensen's- almost as if he didn't have a clear recollection of some of those times it's almost back as if he in wasn't quite day. in his right mind yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. it is a common theme with jurgensen that like over the years you will get wildly different and directly contradictory explanations for even the simplest of occurrences right um, it's like but, if you ask him the same question more than once you're already yeah, exactly. you've already made a mistake you should yeah, just you, like you're already going to get three answers yeah document that first answer and move yeah. on um, but I think that's, to me, that sounds like the most common one. Uh, sorry, the most um, believable one, I should say. Uh, that he basically just like heard hardcore music and went, oh shit, yeah. no, that's what I want to yeah. do. Um, because if you listen to that early stuff, and it's not bad, honestly. It's like he kind of disowns it a little now, but it's not bad. But it, what it is, is hugely influenced by British goth and post-punk uh, and later, very directly by Depeche Mode as well. Um, so clearly he was sort of finding, you know, and we all do that when we start out. He was listening to his influences and kind of emulating and imitating them a little. Um, he was Divine's guitarist at one point before he formed his own band, if you can believe that. Um, I mean, it's almost Pantera-esque, that yes. chapter of their career, because let's never forget that Pantera was a hair metal band. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and Alice in Chains. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, and you never will let them forget it. <laughs> never. But yeah, so as I say, that to me sounds like the most, because it's also, 
it's a very honest and sort of it's the kind of explanation that doesn't rely on building your own myth, which as time went on, Jurgensen did, you know. Oh, he's a storyteller. Yeah, begin to do a lot. <laughs> he <laughs> so, is a storyteller. Yeah. Anyway, so they had they they as I say, they made this shift and then in the mid eighties, mid to late eighties, they released two albums before Psalm 69 that were real precursors and really kind of showed that shift happening. And that was um, Land of Rape and Honey and The Mind's a Terrible Thing to Taste. Um, and those were fairly successful. You know, not huge. They didn't change the landscape or anything, but they were fairly successful. Um, and, and those they, are both with Paul Barker, right? He was on both of those albums. Barker joined before Land of Rape and Honey, as yeah. did um, Bill Rieflin yeah. as well, the drummer. Uh, and I think... I think, uh, what's his name? Scatchier, the guitarist, uh, yeah. I think joined also around that same time. Basically, that core of the band, those four members all kind of came together uh, around the same time. And yeah, from Land of Rape and Honey through Psalm 69, that core of the group was all together and, you know, sort of working as a unit. And I don't think it's any coincidence therefore that those three albums are clearly the band's best albums they're the best output that jurgensen ever put together um well and interesting how he well yeah i'm sure you'll get into that how he frames that uh, well yes absolutely what i was going to say was he's clearly a ringleader he's clearly Uh really really good at taking other people's contributions and putting them into a thing that becomes ministry uh yeah where I think, yes, he kind of lost his way along, you know, was where he started to think, no, it's all me. Yeah. Um, and everybody else got a bit pissed off with that and they all fell away one by one. But when he was just doing that, playing that part of ringleader and, uh, yeah, being that sort of compiler and, and more of a producer, really, you know, a guy yeah. who puts everything together and makes it more than the sum of its parts. He did an incredible job at that. So yeah, those albums were relatively successful. Um, as you can see in, there is a live video of Ministry that was recorded on the Minds a Terrible Thing to Taste tour called In Case You Didn't Feel Like Showing Up. Uh, I think there's an album of it as well, but I've, I've never heard that, but I have seen the video many, many times, and we'll get into that. I'll explain why later. Uh, what I wanted to ask was, did you, because that was a, those were fairly well-attended shows and a big production, did you see that video? No, I ah. did not. And I, did, I haven't watched, um, the only video of Ministry that I've ever seen are the videos that they had, their actual videos they made for MTV. As right. far as live, I had never seen them live. Um, my exposure to Ministry, other than seeing like, New World Order on MTV was when I, because this album came out in 92, that was the year I graduated high school and then subsequently started college in the fall. My roommate, uh, who actually wasn't my roommate to begin with, but he, he was a kid across the hall who lived with another kid, we had similar musical tastes, and he had picked up this album. And the first time I ever heard the album was in college. So I would say like three months after it came out, right? It came out in July and I ended up hearing it in the fall of that year. And that was a staple of any party or any gathering. And I ended up living with this kid uh, my sophomore year in the in the apartments on campus. And so anytime there was a group of people or anytime people were pre-gaming for a party and getting revved up for a party, you could bet your bottom dollar that this album would get thrown on to fire people up, especially 
you know, as we'll get into it, uh, the beginning of this album. So yeah, yeah, this, that was my exposure to ministry as far as actually hearing the whole album was when I got to college. So had you literally not heard ministry before? Cause the first, the first single, and again, we'll get to this, but the first single from this album was Jesus built my hot rod. Was that by any chance the first no. thing of theirs that you heard? No. Was it new no, world order? It, it was new world order. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's in, in, interesting. Yeah. Um, I heard them at art college. Uh, there were a couple of the, remember when we did um, Skycloud, I mentioned the Grebos. Yes. Uh, the Grebo movement. Well, there were a couple of Grebo kids in my uh, design class, uh, at, on my design course, I should say, at uh, art college. And they were big into this nascent industrial stuff like ministry, uh, Front 242, you know, Nine Inch Nails' first release, all that sort of stuff. And at the time, Mind had just been released. Mind's a Terrible Thing to Taste had just been released. So that tape was played a lot in our design studio. You know, we had to get a blaster in the corner, tape player. We all brought in tapes and that one got played a lot. Um, so I heard Mind's a Terrible Thing to Taste over and over. I was very familiar with that. And then one of my very good friends, a guy I'm still friends with now, uh, got seriously into industrial and he bought those earlier ministry albums and stuff. And in addition to that stuff, he also got a VHS copy of the live video in case you didn't feel like showing up, which again, we watched many times. I can't, I don't even want to think about how many times <laughs> I've watched that video or how many times he has Christ. Um, uh, and it was kind of, it, it's, you should watch it if you get chance. It is a very late eighties thing where it's got that kind of late eighties, cheap B movie, cyberpunk uh-huh. aesthetic, you know, lots of things like oil drums on fire, and there is literally chicken wire between the band and the audience. Uh, there are 10 guys on stage. You can't tell what half of them are doing half the time. Jurgensen himself is not even up front most of the time. Uh, Jello Biafra comes on at one point to uh, deliver a sermon and then do some performance art during, I think it's during Thieves, uh, or it might be during Breathe. I'm not sure. It's, it's chaotic, absolutely. Is this thing up on YouTube now? Do you know, it might well be, because it is yeah, quite odd. I'll have to it check it out. Me. Uh, it is worth watching, just because it's one of those gigs where you're like, that looks like one of the best fucking gigs <laughs> that has ever happened. Um, well, and you mentioned, you know, the did I hear the single Jesus Build My Hot Ride? That came out like eight months before the album came out. Because uh, I, I don't know if it was quite eight months, but it was a, it was a while, yeah, yeah. I think it said November 91, that single came out, and then New World Order was released at the same time as the album. So so to in my mind, like that was the first single off of right. the album because it came out at the same time that the album came out. And so, yeah, I had pretty much missed Jesus Built My Hot Ride. And had I heard that first, I don't know that I would have been as excited to listen to the rest of the album as I, right. as I was when I listened to New World Order. <laughs> That's understandable. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very a very divisive track. So anyway, so this friend of mine, he also what he what he also did was realize, because he got really into it way more than me, was he discovered that Jurgensen and Barker have had all these side projects that they have uh-huh. this, this reputation for like a dozen different side projects. So stuff like Revolting Cox and a thousand homo DJs. And he started buying all that stuff as well. Anything he could find that Jurgensen was, you know, masterminding basically. Yeah. And so I heard all of that kind of secondhand. And then, yeah, Jesus Built My Hot Rod was released and we were like, oh, this is even heavier than anything on the last album. And then Psalm 69 came out and it just kind of blew us all uh, away. Um, I mean, this is, 
this album for me, I think, would easily have fitted into the theme of I did last volume of albums that change metal because after, and I'm sure you must have seen this as well, you know, even though you weren't aware of Ministry beforehand, but after this album hit, um, specifically things like New World Order and Just One Fix as well, almost every band, every band who basically who had spent the past two years trying to sound like Nirvana yep. now suddenly went out and bought a drum machine and a yep. distortion box for their vocalist and tried to sound like Ministry instead. <laughs> and no one does. Like, I, I no. don't I don't think, you know, going back and doing a deeper dive on this album, it stands alone it in really my mind. Does. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It's. Uh, I mean, well, there are elements that it brings to mind to me of other things, but the, f- certain aspects of the production and their sound are just different. Nobody ever sounded like it before, and nobody ever sounded like it again since. Not even Ministry. It is. I would agree with that. Yeah, such a, an incredibly unique album in that sense. Um, I mean, it's a bit like you could you talking about Pantera. You could say the same thing about um, Vulgar Display of Power. Uh-huh. You know, like many, many bands tried to emulate that and tried to sound like right. that in the wake of that album's success, and nobody did. No, and there's a reason that you keep going back to that album, because that is the album. And I would say for Ministry, this is the album. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah. I mean, that that's partly, talking about themes, that's partly why I chose it uh, for this volume for me. Again, I'll I'll reveal my theme next, uh, ne- on my next choice. But yeah, it's absolutely, this is, you know, by far their best album and completely unique, not just within the field, but even within the band's output. Um, and part of that, again, is down to Jurgensen's undeniable ability in the studio, you know, as a producer. Um, I remember reading interviews with them, um, with Barker. Barker did a lot of the interviews, again, because Jurgensen was just too completely wasted drugs. yep all the yep. time uh, so barker did a lot of the interviews at the time around the release of this album and i remember reading several of them where people would try and quiz him about like how does he get this sound how do you how do, why do the drums sound like this how do you get that guitar sound all this sort of stuff um you know barker to his credit just wouldn't tell them was really tight-lipped and said like no 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 no, no. you i'm you know it's he puts a lot of work into this you know al is a crazed genius in the studio and has these incredibly complex, because I remember obviously this was back before the days where you could just plug everything into a Mac and get right, whatever sound you like. Exactly. Have everything perfectly programmed to replicate itself every time. Yeah. I mean, there were solid state effects units at that point. Cause a friend of mine had one, a rack mounted uh, guitar effects unit uh, processor uh, in the, it would have been a couple of years after this came out, but it, you know, it would have been contemporaneous. Um, but they were nowhere near as sophisticated as the sort of thing you can get now. And yeah, Barker said, look, he builds these massive chains of effects boxes, not just for guitar, but for every instrument on the record. Um, And that's how he gets this sound. And obviously it's kind of, we're not going to tell you how we do it because it's what makes the ministry sound. And it is just so, yeah, so unique. Um, so, Everything about this album. I mean, I, I just re- I read an article. I pulled. There's an article on the Void Report about Paul Elledge, who did the cover mm. for Psalm 69, and just the um, he actually did the cover for the single uh, "Jesus Built My Hot Ride," which is of a of an engine. Um, but he talks about Psalm 69 and basically going and getting all of these objects that were on the cover. He said, I went to these Latino stores in Chicago. They call botanicas where they sell these religious artifacts. I went to a Greek religious store 
to a place called American Scientific that sells used science stuff to drift stores, even to flea markets. I was trying to make a reference to iconic imagery that has to do with the human memory, materialism, and the relationship to objects where the objects become memory or something more significant. I wanted that cover to take people to a place to what they've experienced with the music, almost like a religious experience. And then he goes into talking about, you know, the the uh, things that he did with the actual photos themselves to get the look that he wanted to get and stuff like that. But it's, uh, yeah, it was, it, I, I think I read that same piece. He's like scratching dude, the negatives and, yes, and you know, and, literally the actual negatives that he could have completely ruined. <laughs> and the crazy thing about that is like, rarely have I seen a cover that so accurately captures the sound of an album as this one, because would, when you think about the production yeah. and how, layered it is you know and how um distorted it is and how there's just this film over a lot of it like it to me like the cover is just like man that cover certainly captures the vibe of the album to me yeah maybe not maybe not in like the the starkness and graphicness of the imagery but of the the sort of sonic vibe of the album. Right. A lot of it is stuff where you're looking at it going, I can't quite tell what that is. Exactly. And that's, dude. As you say, yeah, sonically the album sounds like that. I must admit the artwork for this album did actually put me off a little bit when uh, it was first released just because, and it's not really fair on them, but it was just because I was surrounded by people a, a bit like the, a bit like the Nirvana effect, you know, when suddenly everybody was into rock music. Um, uh-huh. I was suddenly surrounded by people who got into this album in a serious way. And, and bear in mind that I was at, I'd just come out of art college. So I knew a lot of designers and artists who suddenly all of the artwork, everything looked like that. Every, everybody was trying to emulate that cover. And yep. I was like, you do know that Dave McKean's been doing this for like the last six or seven years, you know, Sandman for heaven's sake started several years ago and was doing uh-huh. stuff like this and McKean's own album covers. And yeah, it was just, it was a little disappointing because it got an outsized amount of credit for, you know, kind of doing something that to me actually felt kind of retro by that yep. point, which, you know, is a little unfair on my part. And it's not certainly not fair on the artist because he wasn't trying to claim that he was doing anything new. And as you say, it does suit the album. But my God, I was surrounded by so many people who thought that they'd discovered the second coming uh, yeah. and just had no idea of, of the history. But that's the old man. Even when I was a young man, I was an old man. So. Yes. <laughs> that's just me. Um, but yeah, so it came out and yeah, changed. It changed metal. There's no question here. You know, it changed uh, music uh, or heavy music at any rate um, and was a, an enormous success. I mean, actually, it didn't chart as high as their following album, but, uh, but it had a longer sustained sales period. I think it's the only one of their albums. That's a platinum. I believe you're right. And now this hit 27 and I want to say the next one hit 19, maybe right on the charts. So that was a short spike. Whereas this was a, a dark side of the moon style. You know, it carried, it kept selling for like six months, not hurt of course, by the fact that they then joined Lollapalooza just after right. this album came out, which well, I'm and sure hit, contributed a lot to that. It hit gold in 93 and platinum two years later. Oh, it took that long? Wow. Yep. But that shows that it really did just keep selling and selling and selling over all that time. Um, 
and it is a better album than Filth Pig. I mean, that's the which is the album that uh, followed it. Filth Pig is just not as good an album. I mean, it's not as bad as some of its critics would uh, have you believe, but it is nowhere near as good as this. Um, you, you know, some individual tracks on it are pretty good, but as an album as a whole, you know, this is just a much more cohesive, uh, just much better album. And yeah, again, most people, maybe not enthusiasts, but most people when this album came out had simply never heard anything like it. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it hits with the chaos that it embodies. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, holy crap. Yeah. It's, uh, and also, and again, we'll get into this in the, in the songs, but also the, the style, what became really, I mean, this is the thing they did set industrial music. They did, you know, ministry did not invent industrial music, but they were there at the start, you know, and you go back to things like land or rape and honey, and you can hear the start of what became known as, you know, industrial. Um, they were definitely part of that pioneering movement, but it's not like they invented it with this album. Um, but one of the things that uh, that signified it and the way it developed in the wake of this album was the really, really mon- the monotony of it. You know, the repetition, the endless repetition, the uh, the dirges, and the sort of lack of chord changes. Um, the really sort of easy to play single note riffs, which obviously a lot of amateur bands, myself included, you know, emulated because it was really easy to play. A lot of people had never heard music like that before. Uh, and again, that's not to say that, it, that they invented it, but it really popularized it. Um, and so it was just kind of, it, the whole thing sounded so different to anything else that was even in the underground really, at the time, unless, as I say, you were an enthusiast. I remember another quote from Paul Barker that I'll never forget. Somebody said, so, like, you know, all these tracks that go on for six minutes with, you know, like, one chord, uh, how how do you remember, like, the song? And he just said, there's a lot of counting. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah I, can, I can imagine that. There probably yeah. is, because there's also some very odd time signatures on some of these songs as well. Oh, for sure. But uh, yeah, Ed, I uh, I did see the ministry live, but unfortunately, it was not when they were at their height. At I their saw height, them. Yeah. I saw them in the late nineties. I think Paul Barker was still with them at that point, but it was part of an all day festival, one of those multi stage things, uh, and they were on at like three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and it just wasn't. It wasn't right, you know. Uh, well, just... I don't know. Have they, in, are, are they, because in 2018, I was reading a thing that, that where uh, Jorgensen had said, we're, we're actually talking about doing something in the near future. He was talking about how him and Barker had kind of mended fences and were talking again. And this was 2018. I don't know if this has then since changed again, but it sounded like after years of, you know, basically not talking to each other or whatever they were, they were starting to uh, talk again. So I didn't know if there was any talk or if he had rejoined for any gigs or anything like that. I haven't seen anything about that, but I, I don't follow ministry closely enough to know if that's the case or not. Um, it wouldn't entirely surprise me because I I think I, again, I think I read that same piece uh, and it wouldn't entirely surprise me if two months after that, you know, things changed and they fell out again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That and seems I think it, to define their relationship. 
Well, and the reason that I was kind of trying to find out more information about that is because I just got tickets for, yet again, Slayer's Farewell Tour. This is the final, final leg of their the real Farewell one. Tour, which I think I've seen them three or four times on their Farewell Tour now. <laughs> again, um, like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> but they are actually coming through my hometown. They're coming through Springfield in right. wow. November. And when I first started taking my son to concerts... I was like, ah, he's too young for Slayer. Like, I'm going to hold off on that for a little bit. And that was like three years ago, and he just turned 13. And so he's seen all of the other members of the Big Four, and Slayer is the only one he hasn't seen. And so I just bought tickets this week for us to go, because it's right down the street, for us to go and see Slayer. And Ministry is one of the opening bands. And Yes, I saw you post that on the Facebook group, yeah. Yeah, so I'm super stoked about that for a couple of different reasons. Yes, I mean, if they are still touring together, then yeah, obviously, you know, as long as, I mean, basically what I was going to say was that, that like I say, that ministry gig was was bad, uh, you know, but yeah. being part of a festival, I don't think suited them. Playing in the middle of the afternoon absolutely did not suit them. The sound wasn't great. It was just, it was a mess. Um, and I think Jurgensen actually may have still been on the drugs by that point. I'm not sure he was clean by that point either. Uh, so it, yeah, it was just, it was a right on mess. However, I did see Revolting Cox in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Uh, and Revolting Cox was basically ministry without Jurgensen uh, when they performed live at any rate. Um, so I did see them and I, for the li- I've been racking my brains and I cannot remember where. I cannot remember if they were the headline or if they were the support. I do not remember a damn thing about it, <laughs> except that it was great Chris Connolly was a really, really funny and charismatic frontman, um, and they had both drummers. They had Martin Atkins and Bill Rieflin um, doing the the double drums on stage, and they were brilliant. I remember being really impressed at how good those two were, how utterly in sync the drummers were. Um, so yeah, that was brilliant because that was it, that definitely was indoors. It wasn't, you know, at a, I remember that much. It wasn't at a festival. It was at a gig indoors at night, and that absolutely suited them. Um, but yeah, as I say, unfortunately, the only time I actually saw Jurgensen live was at that, uh, festival gig, which wasn't, uh, wasn't very good, but everybody else was, uh, so yeah, I mean, like I say, there's not a lot else to say because so much of the history of ministry is kind of either before this album or after this album, you know, yep. and both of those periods were kind of, you know, everything before this album felt like it was building up to this album. And then everything after it felt like they were trying Diminishing to re- returns. recapture yeah. this album. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we mentioned drugs. I mean, just to, there's a great article on uh, revolver around some of the craziest stories from this album. But just when, when we say that there was a lot of drugs being done at the time. I mean, one of the th- quotes from Jorgensen in this thing is that uh, by the time they finished touring for the previous album, and we're obviously in the process of starting this one, he was saying, I was shooting up, smoking crack, and drinking Bushmills laced with acid. And it was a cycle that I repeat 10 times a day at least. And that the addictions that the band had were costing them $1,000 a day. Yeah. which they used their $750,000 advance from the record company to make the new album to pay for. Yeah, it's, some of that story has, again, has changed over the years. Uh, the $1,000 a day drug cost, that's been consistent, so that is almost certainly true. Uh, there is also a story about 
part of the reason the al- the release of this album was delayed was trying to get clearance for samples uh, from um, God, I've forgotten his name, the writer Burroughs. Oh, right, because he was uh, William Burroughs, um, and and then the word got around somehow, and Burroughs' manager or agent or somebody like that heard that this was the case and went, well, nobody's, oh, I read that. Yep. nobody's called us. Like, what? And he called up Jurgensen and said, this is bullshit. Nobody's even contacted us about this. You can have anything you want. But why don't you come down here and visit yes. Bill? Uh, and <laughs> they did and proceeded to take heroin together yep. uh, because it's Burroughs. Um, so uh, that I do believe. The $750,000 advance has grown in the telling over the years. Right. I've read uh, reports that had that at 350,000, had that down to 125,000. There's definitely been some yeah, differing yeah. reports of that. But yeah. but but it was still regardless, it was still a lot of money and using their advance to pay for their drug habit was right. a pretty and, clear theme throughout. Well, and not only that, but by the time they'd finished with it, they only had one song to show for it and that was Jesus built my hot rod. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is like the most expensive single ever made, (laughs) which is built around a drunken, you know, mumbling rant. Right? Yeah, yeah. The story there is well. Actually, no. Let's wait until we get to the yeah. We'll talk about that when we get to tell that story. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the the debauchery. The I mean, and and this is where the split in the band began, really, for sure. Because um, I mean, and again, a lot of this is one sided because Barker has never told his side of the story. He doesn't, dude. I looked for yeah interviews with and he just doesn't um there was an interview that he did where he talked about a documentary that came out about them and how he was uh how he had watched it and it brought back a really a lot of rough memories because he's really moved on from that period in his life he doesn't like to relive it um the quote that i pulled from it was a rolling stone article about a documentary on ministry and it was uh, the documentary took years to come out, and in the intervening time, they did interviews with all of these other musicians from that era, and they all were saying these amazing things about ministry. And so it says in the article, it was nice for Barker to hear all those compliments, especially since he had no idea at the time what other artists thought of ministry, nor did he care. And he said, when you're in the middle of an endeavor, you're focusing on getting the job done, so we wanted to kick everybody's ass, take no prisoners, our shit is heavier than your shit. Music is just as competitive as anything else, he explained. So realizing that our peers were paying attention to what we were doing and appreciating what we did at the time, it's mildly surprising. That doesn't mean I want to make music like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. He just doesn't he doesn't really talk about it for, for whatever reason. And I think it's quite considering some of the things that Jurgensen has said about him over the years. I Dude, think it shows some quite remarkable restraint. Amazing. You know, it reminds me a bit, and this is going to invoke the drinking game that everybody plays around the show of Megadeth. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me <laughs> of Dave Ellefson and Dave Mustaine's relationship, which doesn't seem to ever have been as contentious as this relationship here, but just the idea that, you know, um, the leader of the band who whose story often evolves and then this uh, you know collaborative partner who was there most consistently throughout the years they made their best music and doesn't get enough credit and is kind of downplayed in a lot of the conversation like i and also much like barker dave ellison is has been super classy i mean even about the the lawsuit that him and you know mustaine had and all that kind of stuff like he's he's always just taken the high road about any of that stuff. Yeah. 
um, as much as like sites like Blabbermouth would like to stir up shit and have them, you know, cause drama within the band. Like he's always just been really sort of high road about that. And so, yeah, it, it brought me to that as I was reading some of the stuff about Barker, because there is, uh, he just gets dumped on all the time. Yeah, I mean, Jurgensen is at yeah. one point in one interview I read, he literally caught, and it might have been an excerpt from his biography, literally just says, Oh, he was just never anything more than a mediocre bass player. He yep. wasn't involved in any, in writing any shit. You know, I carried him. And it's just like, A, I do not believe you. And B, even if that's true, Ex- that's have thing, some dude. fucking class, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, dude. Like, and, and yeah, I mean, he's, uh, there's not a lot of interviews that Jorgensen does where he comes off sounding like a guy that you'd want to be friends with. That is true, unfortunately, yeah. Um, so, yeah, talking about the split in the band, so what, basically, Jurgensen and Skatchia were the the junkies. They were yep. the, the drug heads. Um, and then on the other side, you had Chris Connolly, Bill Rieflin. Uh, Chris Connolly, if, for people who don't know, was another singer. He was the main singer in Revolting Cox um, and also lyricist and, and songwriter, but he mainly served as a sort of, uh, muse and backup singer and stuff on ministry uh, tracks. Uh, Bill Rieflin, who was the drummer uh, and an excellent, excellent drummer at, at that. And yeah, Paul Barker, the bassist and sort of main co-writer, at least that's, you know, what the, what the story was at the time. And those three were not junkies. And so Jurgensen and Scatia disparagingly referred to them as the book club because, you know, they said they're the kind of guys who you'd find in a coffee shop reading a book while we're in a bar taking drugs and getting completely wasted on, right. uh, you know, bottles Living of Living that rock star lifestyle. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Which, I mean, may, all of that may well be true, but it's not the sort of thing that leads to a uh, healthy relationship, shall we say, within, you know, within a... No, but you think like in the... And I don't know how much of this he's acknowledged. I'm, it doesn't sound like a lot, but you would think that, especially now at this point in their career, he realized how much he needed someone like that in the band, right? I mean, if you're just going to be a complete disaster, you actually need people in the band who are not a disaster to keep the band moving forward. This is the one thing, and again, contradictory accounts. Like, uh, whilst in some interviews, you know, he will, Jurgensen will basically say, I did everything, you know, Barker did nothing, whatever. In other interviews, some of them contemporary, uh, Jurgensen actually basically says, Barker had to take the reins and take control of ministry because I couldn't, because I was too off my fucking head, uh, yeah. you know, and I couldn't do a damn thing. So again, very, very conflicting sort of reports and opinions and what have you. But it was clear that, yeah, I mean, that's what led to the split in the band. And that's kind of where it started was around the drug use. Um, well, I mean, and just objectively, like, would this album have ever even gotten completed? Right. Had I'd- there not been people in the band who were intent on bringing this thing to the finish line. Well, and not only that, uh, but also would the record company have, because Jurgensen tells the tale in Jesus Built My Hot Rod of basically threatening, saying to the to the right. record label, look, either release this or drop us from the deal. Um, and I read a thing from Patty Jurgensen, his ex-wife, who was also the band's manager, where she, and, and you know, she's not a woman who's shy about uh, speaking her mind by any means, much like Al. And she says that if it that the record company basically said to her face that if it weren't for her and Paul Barker, they would have dropped the band because they didn't trust anybody else in that band to actually get anything fucking done. Um, but they did trust Patty and Barker to keep Al uh, and the others on track and basically and actually get shit done. So... 
you know, again, it's kind of, it's all he said, she said. Um, right. But knowing what people and rock stars are like, I am inclined to believe that to a certain extent. Well, and hearing the finished product, right? I mean, talk about a trip into the mind of a junkie. Oh, yeah. That this album is. Holy crap. I mean, it, it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. Well, let, let's get all right. So let's let's do that. Let's start that. Let's uh, get into the album itself, track by track. So we'll start off with, of course, track one, the opening track, NWO or New World Order. Just a ferocious opener. I mean, from the sirens. Yeah, an absolute blast, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I mean, it's anxiety provoking, and I would say that of many of the tracks on this album. Like it, it is. Uh, it just, it just hits like a bomb. You've got the sirens. You've got the, you know, the military chanting in the background. Then the riff comes in at like forty seconds, and then when the vocals start at like a minute. And this is a th- something that plays out through the entire album in terms of like how the vocals are produced. It sounds like he is under an inch of water. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it sounds like he's talking to you through water. And so you can kind of understand what the words are, but also not at times. And it's, uh, it's just very unsettling because he's kind of barking these lyrics through what feels like water. I think it's the it's really interesting what he did with the vocals on this because up until this point uh the only other track that I can think of that had this same sort of the same effect on the vocals was um uh Burning Inside from Mine's a Terrible Thing to Taste. Um all the other tracks have distorted vocals but not in this same way. And I don't know what he did on this, but you're right. It does almost sound like he's underwater or something. It's really odd. And the thing is, there are also di- just straight distorted vocals on this album. Uh, yep. And obviously that's much easier to do, to recognize what it is and do. Exactly. And I, I, that's why I'm sure distorted vocals became, <laughs> you know, the uh, Diriger method of vocal delivery for uh, all those industrial bands that sprung up in the 90s because everybody could do that. but the effect that he has here and through a lot of the songs, yeah, how the hell? No fucking idea. No idea how he does that. 
some kind of Leslie cabinet effect on it as well, maybe, and a flanger. What the hell? I don't know. But yeah, what an incredible opener. And you can hear the bass. You can really hear the bass. Oh, uh, for sure. It's nice. Even and in thick. that opening blast, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah. And then the, that just uh, the guitar squeal, dun, dun, yep. dun, 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 you know, like that whole, it's just the, the whole thing feels like an anxiety attack. Yeah. Well, it's, the, it's, just the, it's propulsive. Yeah, this, this absolutely. The, the thing about there's something about the beat and the way the beat and the bass play together that absolutely, you know, we talk about driving rhythms and this is a really propulsive driving, driving rhythm. I, and this is, the, this is another thing that came up with the copycat bands. Like I said, everybody went out and bought a drum machine. I'm not sure this is a drum machine because Bill Rieflin was still in the band at this point and Bill Rieflin is an excellent drummer. Um, I wonder with a lot of these tracks whether what we're hearing is a combination of real drums and drum machine both of them distorted and compressed and run through effects so that they kind of sound similar you know what i mean well and the fact that you can't pull that apart and easily recognize it it goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the the sort of uh his production magic you know what i mean like his his uh his technique in the studio because it is hard to determine like the part that to me that sounds like a like a machine is that is that first you know like that kind of right. thing but yeah the song itself well but, but even then you and i know there are low plenty of drummers who can do that oh uh, absolutely yeah you know, absolutely there are to a, to a dedicated metal drummer that kind of blast beat is not that difficult so but it sounds that it's so clear Every hit of that kick drum is so clear that you're like, well, surely that can't be a real one. That must be a machine. But yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, and what talking about all the, you know, all the effects and processing and stuff, the samples in this, one of the things that I like about Ministry's treatments of samples, and especially on this record, is, and bear with me here, reminds me of Public Enemy. And I say that because one of the innovations that Public Enemy brought to hip hop was using samples not as just a bit of atmosphere and like snippets of dialogue and things or you know backing singers and what have you but using a sample as part of the as part of percussion and the rhythm and you know it was just there throughout the whole song rather than just being dropped in you know at a particular place and ministry do that and again you know not the first band to do it but absolutely it's so consistent throughout this whole album and i think they were the first to do it to such an extent, again, you know, it became, uh, you know, sort of a part of what industrial music sounded like. But up until that point, I don't think it really had been. So just one more thing to, it's unsettling. You were talking about the the effect this song has on you and the whole album has on you. The whole thing is unsettling. And part of that is because you cannot work out what you're listening to. Yep. And then the lyrics themselves, how to love without a trace of dissent. I'll buy the torture because you pay for the rent. Like, just oh, like, yeah. this this whole album is, man. There's some crazy lyrics on this album, and the, the, at, at times it feels like the beginning of the apocalypse. Right. And I think this it's opening an song, apocalyptic album, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this first song just sort of like, especially if you grew up during the era that we grew up in, where the threat of nuclear war was an actual threat. Yep. You know, that, that you thought about and people had like a, a, a level of anxiety about on a regular basis uh, during our childhoods. Like it definitely, uh, 
it definitely evokes that feeling, especially, yeah. and then you, and then not to say anything of the video itself, which is just riots and police beatings and, yeah. you know, um, just uh, imagery taken from actual news footage and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're not so far away from those times now, frankly, we seem no, to be returning and, back to uh, uh, worrying about nuclear war, don't we? Dude, which is seriously like, like why this album gives me a fresh level of anxiety, like listening to it. <laughs> it's funny. And that was one of my sort of overall takeaways from this album is that uh, much like many of us, I would think, like I find metal very relaxing. It's very cathartic for me. Yeah. Like I can go to bed listening to Slayer. I can go to bed listening to Megadeth. And um, this is not an album that relaxes me in the least. This album, like causes me anxiety listening like if i'm just like trying to listen to it, it does the opposite for me of what most metal albums do and uh its ability to evoke that is amazing yeah. just as a as a mood and i think this song sets that tone from the beginning and yeah. certainly if you're gathered together with your friends and like when i wasn't listening that closely to it when we were having parties in college and stuff like that yeah you can get fired up listening to this music too but if you're just putting the headphones on in a room by yourself and listening to this album, like there's an edge to it that definitely uh, evokes a certain feeling in me for sure. Yeah. There's an edge of despair throughout the whole thing that, uh, yeah, is, as you say, only really becomes apparent when you listen to it, you know, closely. Yeah. And that's spiraling out of control. When you think about where Jorgensen was at in his life and he, he was about 32, 33 when this album came out in his addiction, Yep. Uh, the where his headspace was at when he was making this album, the fact that his band was splintering apart. I mean, well, and all the fact that, that George W. Bush had just started the first Iraq War. Absolutely, first, dude. Like all of war, that, yeah. there is. You say despair, and I think you're absolutely right. There is a there is an element of everything is spiraling out of control, and there's no foothold here. And the music creates that atmosphere that right from the very first song of like. There, what are you going to grab onto here? And as you said, when you can't even pull apart what you're exactly you're listening to, it gives you no place for purchase to to slow things down. It's just happening. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just this, it's just this wave that crashes over you. And so, um, I think it's as important. An opener, oh, as an opener, it's superb because it absolutely sets the tone. As we've talked about before, I was just going to say, I think it's important that uh, for younger listeners who maybe don't remember the George H.W. Bush, that's, you know, W's father, uh, right. presidency. A lot of the samples in this song are from his uh, uh, campaign speeches. Um, and yeah, you know, he was, I mean, I think, wasn't it H.W. who basically instigated the war on drugs? That was him, wasn't it? The thousand points of light and all that, you know. He was thousand points of light. Uh, Nancy Reagan was just say no. She right, was, so it right. started, you know, but yes, I mean, certainly she laid continuing the scene, but on. I think the yeah, actual exactly. war on drugs, I think, began under him. And then, yeah, obviously the Gulf War and everything, you know, he was a kind of, he was a bit of a nightmare. I remember him getting elected and being like, oh my God, you know, what the hell have you done, America? Um, right. Yeah, you know, it, but, and so this song is obviously a very pointed protest against him. But at the same time, as you say, coloured by everything else that's going on in Jurgensen's life and spiralling 
you know, oh, into yeah. flames I mean, as around far as, <laughs> as far as institutions, uh, organized religion, government, all that, like, there's definitely it, yeah. all of these things that he's hitting on, and, and certainly the Bush presidency in this album, uh, but also, like you said, all that other stuff that's going on in his life at the time, like, it's just, it feels like sonic chaos. Yep. Well, and and, uh, and talking about, you know, everything else that's going on in his life, let's face it, most of that was drugs. So let's you, let's move on and continue this talking about track two, which is Just One Fix. To me, the best ministry song ever, and I would put this on a list of favorite metal songs of all time yeah. for me. I mean, it's, it's my favorite track on the album. I think it's predictably most people's favorite. It's the most straight-up rock track on the album. Uh, you know, it has a full-on, straight-up thrash riff. Oh, wouldn't, it's so good. Which would not be out of place on a Big Four album, let's be honest. Um, for sure, dude. The difference, talking about the counting again, you know, the difference is the sheer amount of unwavering repetition um, yes because the, this entire song almost you know there's almost nothing changes in the music throughout this entire song it's just one no all it does is when it goes <laughs> da-na, 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 it just it just doubles down yeah you know it just like it just momentarily resets so that it can hit you in the face with it again and it, it's like uh and then the opener like never trust a junkie and then boom the song just explodes yeah. Uh it reminds me of like you remember that first person movie that came out a couple years ago Hardcore Henry? Oh, I didn't see Or that. uh or the uh Statham movies Crank. Remember oh yeah, yeah. I know the Crank where, movies. Like, yeah, yeah. That is like this song is like the sonic encapsulation of a speedball. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it it is. It's just this like man, it's just crazy and uh that riff is absolutely brutal. It, it is a killer um, riff, yeah. It's but the all that repetition, Len, it sort of uh, demonstrates one of the things that I like about ministry, and one of the things that I think, you know, some of their contemporaries and the bands that came after didn't fail to realize and didn't achieve. And I've talked about this before, and that's the emphasis on dynamics within a song because most of this album, the you know the, the enjoyment of listening to it comes from the dynamics and the rhythm rather than tunefulness. You know, it is not a yep. tune, tuneful album. It's not a melodic album, but what it is, is a very, very rhythmic album. And it's got a lot of dynamics. The first track NWO has those drum blasts that repeat it, you know, occasionally yep. through the song. Um, and this has, as you say, you know, the same thing with the da 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 bits, but it also has the, the there's a post chorus instrumental bit from about two minutes, 30. 
where oh, yeah. nothing changes in the music. You listen to the guitars and the guitars are the same right the way through, but what changes is the drums and the volume of the rhythm building up into another Absolutely, case of the same dude. scream that opens the song and back into the main riff. And like I say, if you listen to that, you're like, what? Nothing's really changed. And yet the effect it has is amazing. And that's well, and all then, because of the dynamics. At like four minutes when the Slayer esque, you know, uh, notes come in where it's very Slayer, isn't it? It's almost like South of Heaven, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just like that just adds another nice little accent on just it, it like it. This song really is a great, great song from start to finish. I agree. I agree. And yes, you know, so going back to what we were talking about before, I mean, it's where it's called Just One Fix for heaven's sake. It's, you know, it has that line from Sid and Nancy, never trust a junkie. It does not make any bones about uh, its subject matter. <laughs> Life keeps slipping away, fighting in a war with damnation. Yeah. Like, well, driving through New Orleans at night, got to find a destination. I yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, that could even have been about that, even though it hadn't happened yet. That could, you know, almost be referring to that trip to Burroughs's house where uh-huh. he allegedly opened the door on them, said, Are you carrying? And they were like, No, we've only here. got enough for us. <laughs> and he's like, Well, then go away and come back when you have. <laughs> Just like, which Christ. is exactly what they did. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, much like, um, oh, what's the track on dirt? that's i mean all the tracks on dirt obviously are about staley's drug use but what's the one that's really there's one track in particular that is so obviously uh you know just about what it's like to be a heroin addict um uh, oh junkhead of course Mm. yes yes which is just like i said the whole album is about being a junkie obviously but that track is obviously the one that is most about what it's literally just what it's like to be a heroin user um and that's you know, that's the equivalent on this album. Just One Fix makes no bones whatsoever that like, yeah, this is about me being a junkie and it kind of sucks, but I also kind of like it. Well, and just the aggression of this song is the aggression of addiction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the desperation to, you need it. And the driving of this song is like, yeah, it just all comes together in this song, man. This is, this is a killer song. Well, here's a bit of pseudo, you know, chin scratching uh, music wank for you. You know that I'm no fan of fades uh, on songs and NWO fades away. And so does this one. But with this one, I actually think it's kind of appropriate because like you say, after so much repetition throughout this whole song uh, and even leading up to the bit where it fades, it is kind of fitting because it's almost like the song never ends and it's still playing out somewhere. Much like addiction, you know, it's like it doesn't end until you do exactly. Yeah, it's just going on and on and on. Every day is, you know, the same, and yeah, you know, every day you got to find that yet another fix. Um, and so, I mean, like I said, it's a bit of a wanky way to look at it, but I actually kind of for that reason, I don't mind this one fading out because it does feel kind of fitting, like the song's still happening somewhere. Yep, all right, so moving on to track three, uh, TV2.
Not a great song. This in my, is in my mind. <laughs> well, the, I I quite like it, but that's because I like it just because it is so avant-garde. Uh, it is based on a musical joke. Uh, Rieflin and Scatcher basically tried to both play as fast as they could. Uh, that's it. They just went to the studio and said, let's play as fast as we can. Um, and so that's why you have the crazy drumming and the ridiculous, almost sort of, you know, surf guitar on speed, um, uh, lead guitar. And it was originally, there's a version of this called TV song, which is the, uh, B side, I think to the Jesus built my hot rod single. Uh, and if you listen to that, you can tell that it's, you know, this song is a reworked version of it. It is quite similar, but at the same time, it's also very different. And the difference is in, again, the production. So given that that originally was a B-side, um, I wonder if they just didn't, and if Jurgensen just didn't bother, you know, spending much time on it. But then when they came to put it on the album, it got the full treatment. Um, and so comparing the two just from a production standpoint is actually really interesting because they're like night and day, even though it's basically the same song, they sound so different. Um, so it is interesting from that point of view. And I like it, yeah, just because it is so, there's no, yeah, there's no chorus. There's no melody. There's barely a riff. Right. (laughs) But I I do think like, and and I say it's not a, not a very good song. I think it's an awful song from a musical standpoint. However, I think it's an interesting song from a subject matter standpoint and also from a, a sort of where he was at. Cause I can't stop thinking of that the whole time I'm listening to this album is sort of where his headspace is at and what, you know, his addiction and all that other kind of stuff um, from that revolver article that I mentioned before, you know, he was just talking about this song, I think embodies this piece of the interview. And he says, what I was doing wasn't art anymore. It wasn't fun. It was procedure. Since I wasn't enjoying what I used to love, I decided to rebel harder than ever and push the limits to their utmost extremes. Mikey and I were shooting speedballs, blending smack and coke in the same syringe so you don't nod off and you don't get wired. And then we'd sit around and record walls of white noise for hours on end. And I think that goes back to the kind of joke thing that you were talking about where it was just anything to kind of push yourself out of the monotony, right. Or the comfort zone yeah. or the, or the, you know, the routine. And so, but then when you listen to the lyrics, you know, uh, who, what, which, why, who, when did you, when did you say the earth would stop turning? When did you say we would all start burning? When should I make a pledge? Should I listen to the voices in my head? Like talking about the stuff that you see on TV 24 hours a day, right. The the news cycle, the evangelist, the crisis after crisis, Fox the news, prom- yeah. promises of salvation, promises of Armageddon, like uh, just all of that. Well, and, and the crazy conspiracy theories, which I think are hundred percent. Yeah. A big part of this. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, given the fact that they reference Aleister Crowley, <laughs> you know, in the, right. I think that that was uh, also uh, at least a passing interest. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole, you know, connect the goddamn dots and uh, mm. should I listen to the voices in my head? Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. There's a paranoia and references to conspiracy theory. And obviously the music does kind of fit with that or rather the lyrics fit with the music. It just the whole like madness, right? Like, like yeah. not being able to keep all the thoughts in your head sort of thing. So I do feel like it's an interesting uh, song, even though not, not a song I'd put on a playlist or. You know. <laughs> no, that's true. That That's true, actually. And I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. It, it fits in the album. I think it is really good fit on the album, but you're right. It's not one that you'd pick out and play any, you know, outside of the album's context. Um, one that you might, however, 
Segway Man is track four, Hero. to me feels uh has a very white zombie kind of vibe to the riff of it um oh yeah i suppose yeah you know kind of a galloping you know sort of feel to it a much more traditional song clearly than what we've heard in the previous song but um even more so i think than the first two songs you know um that is an anti-war anti you know fight for oil uh you know lyrically it has an actual guitar solo in it it's the clearest vocals I feel like. So it, to mm-hmm. me, it's like the clearest song that we've had so far in terms of traditional song structure. I agree. It, it, it's, it's a fairly straight up thrash track. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's telling that this wasn't a single because you listen to it. If you're not paying attention to the lyrics, you'd listen to this and go, well, clearly this is, this is a single. This is obviously going to have to be a single uh-huh. on the album. Because it's probably the most accessible track on the album. Agreed. But then you listen to the lyrics. Uh, And I do, you're right about them being clear. I think it's interesting that the most obviously blatantly political song on the album has the clearest vocals, where you can Uh very clearly hear hear everything he's saying. Um, And I mean, yeah, as you say, it's obviously an anti-Gulf War um, song. There's no question about, again, about what the subject of the lyrics is. Um, and I think that's probably what stopped it from being a single. Yep. You know, it's it, not a matter of rights. It's just a matter of war. Don't have a reason to fight. They never had one before. You're just a killing machine. He's come to take you down. We take the gas that we need and pump the blood on the ground. Yeah. Again, not subtle. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, no. A, but a great track. An absolutely uh, great. A, a great track. Agreed. Great riff. Uh, and again, the yep. riff barely changes throughout the song. The only time we get any kind of chord change in this song is during the guitar solo, which is pretty short. Every other part, every other inch of this song is, you know, just the same riff over and over again. Uh, which again is that kind of relentless pounding uh, thing that industrial music became known for. Um, I also love the the stop-start part. Oh, the end. I love that dude at 3:42. I wrote that down too. Yeah. Like that stop start, and it's and it's just a little bit off in its timing that it it's unsettling. Exactly in the way that they do. Oh, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's one and a half beats, or it might be one and a quarter, but it's it's not a full beat, which is why it throws you off. Yep. Uh, you know, if it, if it does it, exactly what it's intended to do, like exactly. when it stops, you're like, what? Yeah. If, if it's a full beat, 
then you know sort of going silent and coming back in on the snare it, you can follow that that feels yep. natural you know we've heard that many times before but a one and a half beat returning yep. on the upbeat that is with the guitars still going underneath that is that is much harder to sort of drop back into instinctively i remember many many times watching this get played in clubs and <laughs> And being very amused at people desperately trying to sort of stay in time yep. <laughs> to the end of the song. <laughs> because, yeah, if you don't know, if you haven't sort of sat and thought, hang on a minute, what's happening here? Right. Then, it, it, yeah, it will really throw you. But it is, it's that aside, it's just, even without that, it would still be a great song with a, you know, absolutely killer riff. Yep, totally agree. Great one. And it also, like... To me, like if if this album was just held up on the strength of its first two songs, right, which are great, it wouldn't be where it is today. It's it's the fact that it keeps coming back throughout the album with very solid songs, and I think you know, especially after the departure that is the third song, TB Two, to come back with this one, it's like it puts you right back in the groove of the album. It's almost reassuring in a way, actually. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Given that the album, as you say, as a whole is really actually very unsettling, but that is almost reassuring as much to say, no, it's okay. You know, we are still playing rock music. Don't worry. (laughs) Yep. Um, uh, Okay. So midpoint of the album, we've got to talk about it sooner or later. It's Jesus built my hot rod. Was ding a ding dang my dang along ling long. Featuring the lead singer of the Butthole Surfers. Indeed. Had you Gibby Haynes. Had you heard of Gibby Haynes or the Butthole Surfers before you heard this track? I had heard of the Butthole Surfers before. I didn't uh Gibby Haynes is not a name that jumps out at me um, because I was never a huge fan of the Butthole Surfers. I knew of them, I had heard some of their music, but I was never a fan or a follower of the Butthole Surfers. So when I first read Gibby Haynes, it didn't immediately click like, oh, Butthole Surfers guy. I'd literally never even heard of him or the band before this, uh, for the single uh, of Jesus Built My Heart Rod was released, basically. Uh, so I had no expectations whatsoever when, yeah, it's all like, oh, Gibby Haynes at the bottles of Who the fuck is that? I have no idea. Let's put He's it on the and drunk have a guy listen. that they got him to, to <laughs> yeah. mumble into a microphone for a song that they built around like, his oh, drunken yeah. rambling. Yeah, he's a scat singer. Okay. <laughs> it, it's so funny. Like when you know that when you know that he was completely hammered and you know the story around that like and you go back and listen to it like it's so clear from i mean i think it was pretty clear from the get-go but certainly when you go back and listen to it that he is uh barely maintaining consciousness at the time that he records those vocals well you say that 
I think in retrospect, yeah, it's clear. But the thing is, at the time, if you listened to, like, if you'd seen that ministry video, for example, you know, with, as I say, Jello Biafra going off on one uh, uh, to introduce the encore, or if you'd listened to, like, you know, Revolting Cox stuff, uh, or some of the Thousand Homo DJs stuff, honestly, it's not that crazy that you know it's not so crazy to imagine that they go into the studio and go okay now for this one we're going to do these crazy nonsense lyrics that make no sense uh in a sort of weird psychobilly style that will be great do you know what i mean it's not so yeah. strange to think that they might actually have planned it um because of the crazy things they were doing elsewhere at the time of course what we we know that that's not what happened <laughs> <laughs> no, I just say in retrospect, yes, it's sort of like, oh, okay. I mean, it was- sounds like a less Claypool sound check when they're getting ready to record, <laughs> yes. you know, like, and he's just like free associating as he's getting his voice warmed up for, you know, for the next uh, Primus uh, track that they're going to record in the studio. That's so, a yeah, it really was- great way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for it's- people who don't know, the story is that uh, Butthole Surfers were part of a tour that came through Chicago uh, while they were doing preparations for this album while ministry was basically sort of gearing up to start wasting all that money, uh, in the studio for this album. Um, and, uh, they basically invited, I, th- I think, was it that Gibby Haynes was a fan of ministry's previous albums or something? And Al heard that and went down and saw him. And then I basically think you're right. Invited him back to the studio. Um, sat him but in it was the, the first Lollapalooza tour and it was, oh, was August it of 91. Right, right. Yeah. Right. August of 91. They, that came through Chicago he went backstage attending a show by the Butthole Surfers. After right. the gig, he invited Gibby Haynes uh, to record the vocals for this song. And clearly, when they got to the recording part, he had he, he was, was already wasted. Yeah. yeah, and then and then they gave him more whiskey to continue being wasted. Sat him in the booth and allegedly just recorded him scatting nonsense uh over the music that they'd recorded for about an hour um right and then like he fell off the stool at one point right. they had to put him back on and start recording again that i can absolutely believe yeah um <laughs> and then basically and then sent him away you know they all had a good time whatever and then uh jurgensen spent weeks chopping up and editing the nonsense that haynes had recorded to build this song and then recorded the intro and outro himself uh, you know, the spoken word intro and outro yep. bits um, to build this song into what it is. I mean, again, it's one of those things where you kind of, how much of this story is, has been sort of tidied up and, you know, sort of had the edges rounded off of it to make it into a myth. Um, right. It, it's hard to say, but the end result is deniable. And it is absolutely true that, this was released several months before the album came out because they hadn't yet recorded the album. Uh, the record company were on ministry's back saying like, you know, where's the record? Right. You've had Show this money. Something. It's several months later. Yeah. Give us something. And Jurgensen gave them this. <laughs> and they said, and they heard the it and they were like, uh, yeah, what is this garbage? <laughs> yeah. And he, and then he was basically like, well, you know, uh, you can either dump us or you can let us finish the album. And so it sounds like from the and thing by the I way, read, we need it, more money to do that. <laughs> right. And from the thing I read, and as you say, there are multiple stories, but it sounds like they put, they put this single out to test the waters and the response that it got was what then convinced them to kind of give more money for the, 
completion of the album. Yeah, this was, uh, again, kind of hard to figure out if this is actually true or an exaggeration, but there are claims that this was the it was Arista's highest selling single of the entire year by anyone, which, considering some of the artists that they had on the label, is kind of like, really? You know, if that's true, you can well imagine that it is the sort of thing that will make them say, okay, sure, have all this money, go and finish the album. Uh, yeah. Because you're clearly onto something here. Even if we don't get it, we do understand money, which is so often the way we record labels. For sure. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one because the musically, this riff is pretty much straight thrash. But then as soon as you put Haynes's vocals on top of it, it becomes this other thing and becomes this... Uh, weird psychobilly, you know, it, it drag reminds me of Hellbilly Deluxe from Rob Zombie. Exactly. Like that's that was the vibe I got for sure. I don't think there's any question that, and I'm sure Zombie wouldn't deny that. You know, Ministry were a huge influence on. For, both, oh, absolutely, both White Zombie and his own solo career. Yeah. Um, the only thing that would make this song more thrash in terms of the music would be if it was palm muted rather than uh, open strings. But metal was moving away from that at the time anyway, so. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a really is a case of like the vocals change everything about this song. If you put yep. different vocals over this music, you would have an almost entirely different sounding song. I mean, it has some of the most straight up guitar solos on the album as well. You know, you can hear that Sketch is clearly having fun. I think there's two guitar solos in this track for heaven's sake. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and the riff doesn't syncopate doesn't sync up sorry i should say it is syncopated it doesn't sync up with the drums which is one of those things that again like unless you're listening to it you may not realize you just know that something about it is a little bit off right but the drums are a straight four four and i think the riff is a seven four or something like that they basically they don't repeat at the same time so when you get like you know your four beats of the drum the guitars haven't finished there's, you know, they're right. looping at a different time. Um, and again, you've got to figure that's, the, again, the sort of thing that leads to that whole lots of counting <laughs> situation. Which, but it also goes back to the thing that we talk about so much on the show. Like, if you just listen to this album one time, like, there's probably people mm. listening right now to this podcast that are, that went back and listened to this album one time in order to then listen to this episode of the show. And some of this stuff, they may be like, oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, right. I didn't realize that that's what that, and, and that's where, you know, two or three or four listens through that stuff really starts to present itself differently because you've kind of gotten to that point in your listening of that album where you can start to really pick those things apart. Absolutely. And that's why I mentioned them. You know, it's not just me yeah. being a muso. It is to, to get people to go back and listen again and appreciate, you know, the and depth. Again, yeah, appreciate the depth. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, it's not, you know let's let's be right this album is not the most sort of deeply philosophical no. <laughs> musical journey you could come across but it does have more depth than you might first think upon hearing it well um, especially when you talk about like his his uh you know in terms of composition and production what jorgensen is doing in the studio yeah like you you definitely through multiple listens get a whole different level of appreciation for that yeah, I mean, yeah, he's absolutely using the studio as an instrument um, and and doing it very, very well. Um, so, I mean, and there's talking about the sort of depth, which is also reflected in the variety of uh, styles on the album. Let's move on to track six, Scarecrow. Scarecrow. 
very menacing, plotting, uh, impending doom, evoking song for me. Yeah, it's my second favorite track on the album. Uh, again, probably predictably. <laughs> you know. And this was the one that really also brought me back to that idea of like losing all hope, losing oh, your yeah. perspective of where you even are in life, living in complete debauchery with the money that he had and the drugs and everything else, like just a complete haze of a time period. Yeah, this, uh, this song is absolutely feels like like falling. Yes. Absolutely, dude. Yeah, that's exactly like I like. It feels like it should be on the Twin Peaks soundtrack. Yeah, you know, you know yeah. what I mean. Like it's just got that very otherworldly. Uh, something is terribly wrong. Feel to it. Yeah, yeah. It is slow, ominous. It's brooding. I love the lyrics, and I, I also think this is even though there aren't many lyrics in it, I think it is a great vocal performance. I think it's one of his best uh, because it would be so easy. I think to have put more in and to have kind of gone over the top. Um, yep. And, and I think it just hits the level exactly, you know, it's just right on the line. Um, and I also love the fact that again, it's a dirge, it's repetitive. It's the same riff over and over and over again. But the, as a result of that, the effect, when you get just two chords, that's all that the chorus, if you can even call it that, that's all the chorus is, is two chords. But when yep. they come, because you've been inured, you know, listening to this same, chord the same riff for the last like two and a half minutes or whatever when that chorus comes it's the effect is incredible you know really such power and then back into the repetitive riff over and over and over again um the longest song on the album by almost a full three minutes yeah yeah absolutely um i mean talking about again you know things that they didn't invent but did popularize i wonder how many people listening to this i don't mean to this podcast i mean listening to this album when it first came out um, had even heard a, yeah, like n- eight, nine minute dirge style track like this before, because it just wasn't that common in rock music. You know, it really wasn't. Right. Uh, if you listened to sort of experimental arty industrial collective, and by that, I mean like, you know, original industrial, like can and prong and bangs like that, uh, not prong, sorry. Um, who am I thinking of? It doesn't matter. Uh, gong, sorry, that's it. Gong, not prong. Um, if, if, you know, those bands, they, yeah, they would do 10 minute industrial dirges of like found instruments banging on oil drums and things like that. But in rock music, it really wasn't that common. Um, I mean, ironically, the one example, one of the earliest examples is Led Zeppelin's cover of When the Levee Breaks, which has a drum beat almost exactly the same as this one. Uh, it's about the same speed as well. And I have I've always wondered if that track was an influence on this one. Uh, you know, just not accusing them of copying just as an influence. Um, right. But yeah, just wasn't that common. And so, but now my point being that again, following this album, lots of bands had a track like this on their next album or their next two albums or whatever. Um, it really, even though it's not that it's never going to be the single, it's not the track like just one fix that everybody gets up and dances to or whatever. Right, but it's an important part of the album. It is right in the smack bang in the middle of the album, and it clearly had again a, a very big influence on what came after. For sure. Sorry, that was a bit of a mini rant there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an eight minute and twenty one second song. I, I mean, you're allowed to go on a little bit about it, <laughs> I guess. But I do. I just I really like that track. Yeah. Um, 
And then for me, actually, from that point onward, the album kind of goes downhill, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's as I said, as a, as a whole, I like this album a lot, and I think it is really, really great. And absolutely the best thing they did, but the last three tracks do kind of lose it a bit for me. So uh, track seven, of course, is the sort of title track, Psalm 69. Which is the, you know, the the diatribe against the church, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, some of the other tracks have touched on it, but yeah, this is absolutely, and it's got this that opening, which is just kind of childish. Um, and it, it sounds to me, and I don't know if you've, you're familiar with this, but it sounds to me like they wanted to get Michael Palin doing his Monty Python vicar oh. bit. Do you know the, do you know the bit yes. I mean? Yes, yeah. yep. It sounds like they wanted to get him but couldn't afford him, or maybe they just didn't even try. So they have like this uh, dime other, store approximation. <laughs> right. Yeah. This other guy who clearly isn't English, or if he is, he's doing a really strange accent. Um, yeah. Just kind of uh, whatever. I mean, the song itself has a good main riff. It's got a groove to it. Um, the lyrics are very graphic. Like drinking the blood of Jesus, drinking it right from his veins, learning to swim in the ocean, learning to prowl in his name. Um well, it's the next verse that's really. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was me <laughs> taking the lighter lyrics of the song. Uh, the the next group of lyrics are even more graphic. But yeah. clearly, the the history of sexual abuse in the church, the what the church stands for, what the church is protecting, what you're signing onto by becoming part of it, um, you know, organized religion in general, and what you're starting to look the other way on, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I I think they're pretty straightforward in terms of the lyrics here yeah yeah well and again this is i mean this this is the song that literally has the line the way to succeed and the way to suck eggs which is exactly yeah you know as i say the kind of unofficial title of the album and is taken from alistair crowley's uh publication the book of lies uh, yep. which was one of his uh it's hard to the book of lies is one of those publications where it's kind of everybody who's into crowley has read it so it's important in that respect uh, and it kind of does lay out his philosophy on a lot of things, but it's also not really a central text of Thelemic magic. So it's it's in that weird sort of position of it is important, but technically it's not. Um, right. Uh, but there is clearly, you know, Jurgensen had clearly read it, and there's the sort of the, the the pun in it is correct. You know, it's used correctly. That is indeed Psalm 69 is the way to succeed and the way to suck eggs. That yep. being a joke about mutual oral sex, and you know, uh, so this it's all there. You know, it's um, 
it's all in here. And I agree, the music, when it gets the music, even the, the apocalyptic choir-filled bit of the music, I think is really good. Um, uh-huh. And then, yeah, you get that galloping, thrashy bit with the, the these terribly blasphemous lyrics. Um, it's good, but it's just not as good as... It doesn't hit the bar the rest of the album yeah. has established exactly. for sure yeah exactly yeah um one thing that i do find amusing about it is the uh i wonder if this is where sampling televangelists shouting hallelujah began yep. because throughout the 90s you could not move in industrial music <laughs> for without hearing that samplings of some preacher or other jim phelps or whoever you know shouting hallelujah uh in the middle of a track it was uh it was just weird <laughs> It became a real staple. And I don't think it was all the same sample, but just everybody seemed to want to find that, a sample of some preacher shouting it. It was really bizarre. Um, and then about Monty Python, the final stop it bit yeah. so it also sounds very Pythonesque. I don't know if that is a sample or if it's just one of them doing it and it's supposed to sound like it. But yeah, it's just such a weird track, this. Um, uh, and then, right. So finishing off, then we'll move on to track eight, which is Corrosion. Which starts off with these, to me, unintelligible mumbling loops. Yeah. Um, uh, later on, you could hear amidst the screams the word corrosion, you know, in the background. But it's not uh, for the for the most part. It's an instrumental. Yeah, you're right. And it, well, and it's all. I think even that bit that you can hear, I think it's all samples. I don't think any of it is, uh, it, you know, lyrics by him. a member of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a, this is a wall of sound song, you know? Right. The samples are part of the rhythm again, you know, all the sirens and the screens and stuff uh-huh. that, again is kind of used as, uh, percussion. Um, it's okay. So, uh, I'll, I'll just say firstly, I think, I mean, this song is carried by the drums and those samples basically. And I think it's a good meta example for us uh of why we don't really talk about instrumental albums much as you and i you know both like many such albums but it's really hard to talk about them uh especially with tracks like this which are very repetitive based around a single riff and a single rhythm and is just kind of punctuated by samples yeah this would have been better as a one minute song you know than a five minute song for think, me, I, I think it's a minute um, or two too long. I think a, one minute would have been too short, but I agree that it's maybe a minute too long. Yeah. Well, and if you didn't follow it up by 
another. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, the killer on this album is that you end with what effectively are two instrumentals. That's exactly it. Exactly. Which dude, like, well, not only that, but two instrumentals, (laughs) which are dirges. Um, it's that basically the back half of this album does drag because you've got a nine minute track in Scarecrow. You've then got Psalm 69, which doesn't have a chorus. You know, I mean, it has dynamics, sure, but it doesn't have a chorus. So, and then you've got two instrumentals that last for a combined eight minutes. And this album is 44 minutes and change, almost 45 minutes long. Yeah, yeah. You could have cut this song off of the album and had it been an eight-song album, and you would have still been at almost 40 minutes, and I don't think you would have lost anything. Oh, no. Well, back in the album. day, 40 minutes, you know, this is still the vinyl era. CDs were around, Absolutely. obviously, but, you know, this is still the vinyl era. So 40-minute albums, perfectly acceptable. Um, but yeah, so you, you get like tw- an opening 25 minutes of uh, breakneck chaos yep. on this album. And then suddenly you get 20 minutes of dirge that, honestly, Which- a lot of the time when I'm listening to this album, it's one of those albums that ends. And then five minutes later, I go, oh, it's ended. Do you know what and I mean? And it's almost like, I mean, it, it is that speedball effect, right? I mean, the cocaine comes first and then the heroin comes second. <laughs> yes. And that's really what you do is you fade into, you know, whatever as the as the album kind of goes on. Um, the, the thing that I think suffers here is, A, you don't do two instrumentals to round out the album, in my mind. But B, this song does the final song a disservice because you're sick of this by the time you get to the final song. And I feel like, grace which is the final song on the album is is worthy of being on this album all right well let's okay so let's talk about grace then so yeah that's track nine It. Yeah, I think it's a hell of a track to end an album on. Me too. Because it has no discernible rhythm or riff. It is a wall of noise. Um, it's a really brave track to end an album like this on, considering that it starts, as I said, with a propulsive beat to then end on a track that has no discernible beat whatsoever. Yep. And it sounds like it, when it starts, it sounds like it's almost being recorded when you're on the first floor of a house and the, everybody else is in the basement. That's kind of <laughs> yeah. what, and it, and it feels like this transmission trying to break through. It actually reminded me of Prince of Darkness from John Carpenter, like the dream oh, that they yeah, keep yeah. seeing on the TV, um, and they can't discern it until the end of the movie, uh, sort of thing. But once it gets going, it sounds like the literal end of the world. I mean, the fact that they're screaming all over the place and it's saying Doomsday, the final battle, and Armageddon, and Apocalypse, and and that kind of stuff, and then towards the end, it's 
the words going mad, going crazy, going stark raving mad, like it does build to a feeling of insanity. And I feel like that fits very well on this album. And as we talked about with a couple of the other songs, you know, just that feeling of this junkie who is just in a world that doesn't make any sense anymore and everything's falling apart and, uh, you know, external and internal of what's going on at that particular time. I feel like this, had we not had corrosion at number eight, this song would have felt much stronger to finish on as far as the mood that the overall album is invoking. I just think it's done a disservice because by the time you're done with corrosion, you're kind of done with the instrumental. This isn't enough to get your interest back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it does rebound from track eight, but it, it would have been so much stronger if this followed Psalm 69 in my mind. Uh, I agree. I agree. Um, So here's an interesting thing about this album is we talked about the division between um, Jigginson and Scatchia and what they called the book club. The way this album was made when they finally got into a studio and decided to actually make an album rather than just, you know, piss about and take drugs uh, was allegedly that basically Jigginson and Scatchia would spend all day getting high while Barker, Rieflin and Connolly were in the studio recording stuff. And then uh Jigginson and Scatchia would come in overnight basically and they claim erase a lot of yep. what those other guys did and then record their own stuff instead and they just build up songs in layers that way i i don't doubt that that's probably true i do suspect that the percentages given <laughs> by Jurgensen are probably not accurate because to hear him say it you'd think that almost everything the other guys wrote didn't make it onto the album and was right. replaced by everything that Jigginson and Scatchy wrote. And given that he also admits that he was completely wasted and out of it the whole time, I don't see how that's possible. Uh, to, right. you know, I, I don't see how you. you'd actually get an album at the end of it if that was true. Um, however, one thing that came out while I was, and I didn't realize this before, one thing that came out while I was researching this was that Corrosion and Grace, by most accounts, Barker pretty much wrote and performed those tracks solo. Like they are, those two tracks are almost entirely him. Um, right. Which for one thing I think is very interesting in light of what you just said about how, you know, it feels like the madness of the junkie and all that on the last track. And you wonder if, if that's the case, if that's true, was that Barker kind of trying to channel what he saw in Jurgensen or, you know, or maybe the madness of trying to hold a freaking band together when your partner is a complete junkie and every day is like a fight to create this album that you're trying to like work together on. Like he probably was like pushed to his breaking point too. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the other thing is that Jurgensen has often said that they actually had about 30 tracks they could have used on this album, but they only used these nine. And I just don't believe that. I, I do not right. believe for a moment that if you had other tracks ready to go, this the, is what you chose. That this is what you chose, that the album would end like this. I just don't believe it. And especially knowing what Jurgensen is like, given that these tracks were, as I say, like allegedly almost entirely written by Barker, do you really think he wouldn't have replaced them with tracks that had more of his right. writing on it if he had yep. tracks ready to go? So. I mean, again, who knows? We weren't there. You know, this is all, and I'm sure even the people involved by now, frankly, probably don't remember. Um, because when you're in the sort of 
and you and I know this, you know, as well as anyone, when you're in the kind of fog of creation, when you come out of it and you look back and you think, wait, how did I come up with that idea? When did I think of that? It can all get completely lost. It's very difficult to keep track of, which is one of the reasons why I don't believe a lot of what Jurgensen says about it, because, right. you know, I, I again, especially if you're in the grip of, <laughs> you know, being a junkie. No, you're right, dude. I mean, even, absolutely. You you're write a story, you write a book, well. you, someone asks you about it a few years later, like, what, you know, what was this part about or what was this part? And it's amazing how quickly you forget. Yeah. Yeah, those pieces like i have no idea I, you're like you oh know. man i think it was this and then but is that a, just a story i'm telling myself now or was exactly. this a thing or like i mean there there are easter eggs in some of the stories that i've written that i've completely forgotten about but at the time i was like man this this i'm gonna remember this forever yeah it's like nope i have no idea why that happened that way right uh, even though there was a reason for it at the time i could assure you that well, and as you say, there are stories we kind of tell ourselves where we half remember something and we think, well, I think right. it went like this. So yep. I'll say it went like that because I don't have any better story to tell. Uh, so, I'll, so okay, yeah, it must have gone like that then. And then over time, that becomes a whole story that you tell yourself. For and sure. And you think, well, that must be the truth then. And then actually you find out, you know, if you ever could, you might find out that that is not completely wrong. I'm not saying there's no truth in it whatsoever, but the the details of it, actually are quite different and have been kind of lost in the mists of time. Um, yep. Yeah, that happens a lot when you're, you know, creating works of art and what have you. So, yeah, as I say, a lot of the stories told about this album that have been told, only now been told 20 years later, 30 years later, I have great difficulty believing <laughs> some of them. Um, but nevertheless, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, as we said, this is, Overall, it is still a great album, even though the back half does drag somewhat. Um, it is a landmark album. It popularized what we think of now as industrial music. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing. Industrial had a completely different meaning up until this stage of music. And then along came Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, and to a lesser extent, Front 242. And suddenly, this is what industrial music is now. Uh, even though it was nothing like what those bands in the 60s well, and dude, 70s were doing. And even now, in 2019, this album hits like a truck. It really does. Yeah. Like, if you sit down and just crank this and put this on, like, man. It, it's like, it, it is like a 45-minute anxiety attack. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, And that's a lot of that is, you know, again, not to take anything away from Jurgensen's talents, because a lot of that is down to the production and the sound. Yep. You know, the drums and the guitars... Because let's face it, you know, you listen to a lot of stuff from the 80s and 90s now that at the time we thought sounded incredibly heavy. Well, we had it with the Sepultura album. You know, at the time, nothing sounded like that. And it sounded so brutal and heavy. And you listen to it now and you're like, it's ah, a bit kind of weak. You know, the sound this I album mean, in places. <laughs> right. This album, that does not happen. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, dude, those first two songs are like a one-two knockout punch it's uh it's so impressive i mean you know downward yep. spiral came a couple of years later and you know you can argue that that's what finally took industrial to the top of the charts you know because that was i think that was a number one album and it was certainly a massive hit everywhere everybody loved it you know trent reznor uh, becomes like you know a superstar and everything fantastic but within the metal community this album, Psalm 69, is the one that opened everyone's eyes. This is yeah. the album that, as I say, spawned a thousand imitator bands. Um, and 
yeah, for that reason alone, I think it really, you know, it stands head and shoulders above all of its contemporaries. No argument here. It is still as powerful today as it was when it first came out. Yeah. Which is to say, for an album from that and, period, and really topically impressive. has come full circle. Oh, which is so <laughs> it depressing. Is, it is sadly so super timely for the world that we live in today as well, which is uh, maybe why it invokes such anxiety in me when I listen to it. <laughs> maybe so. But yeah, that's so depressing, isn't it? <laughs> it is, really. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. So let us uh, bring that to a close. Good chat, everyone. Um, and look instead to next episode uh, oh Let's you know do what it. before i do before i do i haven't done i've just realized i neglected my uh promo spiel so before we get into the encore uh nomination selection let me remind everyone that you can uh support the show at patreon.com slash thrash it out you can chat to us online at facebook which is facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out um and uh yeah you know we really appreciate your support we love chatting to everyone uh and it's really as we said earlier it's a really friendly community so do come along and uh you know have a listen um sorry and join in the conversation i mean and also this is why i got confused a minute ago thanks for listening uh if you have been uh remember to please rate us the show on itunes and google play and the podcast stores and all of that sort of jazz if you can and if you want to get in touch go to thrashitoutpodcast.com which has links to the show email and Twitter for myself and Brian. Um, or yes, as I say, you can come and join us uh, on Facebook and chat to us there. All right. So the Encore listeners poll, just a reminder, this is for the next show where we are going to talk about uh, a different album by a band that we've already covered before. The first one of these we did was the bonus show for the last volume where we talked about Metallica's Ride the Lightning. Um, for that reason, we uh, banned people from nominating Metallica again this time. Because, <laughs> you know, really, come on. Uh, but what was really interesting, we had 43 nominations, and what was really wow. interesting was eight of them were Megadeth. And not wow. only that, but most of them for, were for just one Megadeth album. Like an awful lot of people. Want us was it to, Rust in Peace? They want us to talk about Rust in Peace, exactly. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I figured. The next highest, but here's the really interesting thing. The next highest was Black Sabbath, which had six nominations, but every single one was a different album. So, huh, yeah. Interesting. Everybody wants us to talk about the same Megadeth album, but all the Black Sabbath fans want us to talk about. Well, the Megadeth thing albums. makes sense. And I believe we would have gotten the same on Metallica because remember, we did St. Anger to yeah. start with. So we definitely would have had uh, <laughs> people for either Master of Puppets or Ride the Lightning, I'm sure, if we had done that. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me about Megadeth for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, it, it's a, but apart from that, we also, you know, Judas Priest got several nominations. So did Mastodon, uh, so did Motorhead. Even My Dying Bride got a couple of, uh, you know, new nominations, sort of Queensryche and Slayer and, you know, loads of bands. Yeah, it was great. So we have, as I say, uh, 1 to 43, and they're in um, uh, alphabetical order by band. And then within the band, I've done them alphabetical order of uh, album title. Uh-huh. So on line 1 to 43. So I am going to random.org now. Uh, a number between 1 and 43. Generate. And the result is 26. And that is... 
Oh boy. It's okay, it's Megadeth, but it's not Rust in Peace. It's Euthanasia. Oh, nice. It's literally the line below the last nomination for Rust in Peace. <laughs> Missed oh it by my one. God. So we're going to do Megadeth Euthanasia. That was nominated by Edgar Schmidt. So thank you, Edgar. Good job, Edgar. And here's the thing I'll say about Rust in Peace, since we won't be talking about it, is that it is, I, I don't want to say it's the least interesting Megadeth album to talk about, but it is honestly considered to be such a masterpiece that I think euthanasia is going to be a better discussion. Right. Well, I think have. that's probably why a lot of a lot of people wanted us to talk about Rust in Peace because yeah. you know it's uh, because they, it's amazing. Well, it, I and, mean, it's, and also because they want to hear me, you know, snark on it. <laughs> well, yes, they want to hear you try to refute its greatness, which uh, you know we'll save that. Well, think of it this way: Anthony has just been saved from an impossible task. <laughs> Because there is no besmirching the greatest guitar album of all time. So now we won't have to do that, and it won't be an exercise in frustration. We get to talk about euthanasia, which will definitely make for some interesting discussion because of uh, just the time and the diversity on that album. So uh, looking forward to that one for sure. In fact, I think on the Facebook page, I just did... Uh, you know what? I'll I'll save the notes for next time. But I believe on the Facebook page, uh, a few of us had a discussion and almost like a live listen through of Euthanasia. Uh, oh, I didn't see that right. on the Facebook page. So, uh, so yeah, that'll be interesting to talk <laughs> about. But wow, see, and I had nothing to do with that. Yep. That is not me that got yep. Megadeth. But uh, fitting that we did Metallica for our first encore episode, and now we'll be doing Megadeth for our second encore episode, uh, especially since uh, I'm sure you've heard this by now, Anthony, the, uh, that Dave Mustaine was just diagnosed with throat cancer. I did hear that. Yes. And, uh, sounds like it's the prognosis is fairly good and they're actually in the studio continuing to work on the new album right now. But of course that is, that is uh, very concerning news. And, uh, yeah, so they've been in the news a lot about that for sure. Hmm. Well, I think you've just assuaged, uh, you know, our Megadeth fan listeners anyway, uh, with your um, avowal of Rust in Peace. But yeah, I've, uh, and you know, I've, I'm not sure if I've ever heard Rust in Peace all the way through. I mean, I've definitely heard songs off it. I know that. But I don't think I've ever actually listened to it all the way through. And Euthanasia, I actually don't know what's on that album. I'm not sure if I've heard any tracks. Oh, it. I'm very excited. Uh, so, Yeah. But you're right, it is kind of fitting that we should do, you know, the first encore should be Metallica, and then so the second is Megadeth. <laughs> it's kind of crazy it worked out that way. So yeah, pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, that will be our next episode, uh, which we will hopefully drop in, yeah, you know, about another month or so. Uh, and so we will speak to you all then, um, and have hopefully have a good time. <laughs> Until then, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. <laughs>